Sin City with Nick Menezes and Dane McLean. Live chat about everything cinema, from new releases, iconic films, and plenty more for you movie lovers. Live for CMRU.ca. And now, to the men behind the mic. Hello, MRU. We are back at it again with Sin City. I am one of your hosts, Nick. We are joined today by our second time guest, Ryan Robinson, who has, as you know, showed up for our Halloween special. And to those who don't know, came up with the idea and is currently the head of our Sin City website, sincity.ca. Thank you so much. Check it out, everyone. Thank you so much, Ryan. Nick, thanks for having me back on the show. I am really excited to talk about this movie. It's uh, definitely a masterclass for a lot of reasons. Oh, yeah. To those unaware, we will be talking about one of the greatest and most influential films of all time, The Silence of the Lambs, which, perfect timing, because in next week is going to be the 30th anniversary of Silence of the Lambs. That's right, yeah, and this was one of the first films, I think it might have been only the third film ever to uh, sweep in major categories of the Oscars, so that's interesting as well, considering that generally the horror genre doesn't really scoop too many awards. Exactly, yes, finally, someone who gets it, yeah, and this is also, and yes, you're right, it was also the very first time the Best Picture Oscar was awarded to a horror film. Like, there's been a few exceptions, of course, like five only, like The Exorcist, Jaws, Silence of the Lambs, Get Out, and Black Swan. But Silence of the Lambs would happen to be the lucky one in this case. For sure. Yeah, when I was doing just kind of my background analysis of this, I found out a lot of interesting things. So, first of all, Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster both won, but they were actually the second choice for the role. Whoa. Yeah, the director Jonathan Demme, he wanted Sean Connery to play Hannibal Lecter and Michelle Pfeiffer to play uh, Clarice. Damn, wow. Imagine how that would be. It would have been a very different film. (laughs) The name's Lecter, Hannibal Lecter. (laughs) Yeah, as far as I know, they both rejected it based on um, the script being a little too disturbing and it might have been like uh, not the best image for them, Mm. (laughs) like in terms of their personal brand. So they didn't, yeah, they, uh, they rejected it and then it went to the second choices. Ooh, damn, that, what could have been, just, wow, I did not know that, nice. Yeah, I can't really picture so much uh, the Scottish accent. (laughs) And yeah, something I, lately, since last year, while I've always loved the horror genre, my favorite type of horror films are the ones that don't rely on jump scares, and silence would be a perfect example of this. There's not a jump scare to be found, it's more on the the tension, the slow building atmosphere, it's more on good writing and acting without any jump scares at all. It's perfect, really. Yeah, you're absolutely right, and I think that they started that right from the very, very beginning. Like the whole film, everything that's in it is built towards increasing that tension and then they don't have to rely on any jump scares because you're kind of freaked out right from the get-go. One thing I noticed was um, right at the very, very beginning when she's training in the FBI obstacle course, we have Howard Shore's soundtrack. Oh, yeah. Now, interesting, yeah, pre-Lord of the Rings, Howard Shore. And he he kind of elected to use like a really tragic uh, sounding kind of orchestral uh, soundtrack of that part so it, it foreshadows like tension it foreshadows kind of the disturbing nature of the film and the fact that nothing bad has even happened yet and already the music is like upsetting and yeah, sad know, right? and it, they just kick start with that so you know that this film is going to be kind of uh, difficult to stomach exactly yeah that the opening scene or should I say credits it's a good example of uh, soundtrack dissonance, I'd say. Absolutely. And since we're still at the opening, I'd like to discuss the anatomy of a scene. Like, the opening scene, that entire scene of where we... that builds up to when we first meet Hannibal Lecter. Like, that... Oh my, that is a perfect example of 
buildup of a character establishing, I'd say. Like, we start at the asylum with uh, Dr. Frederick Chilton saying that Hannibal is a monster, the most deranged patient in the asylum. And then we cut to Clarice, you know, preparing to go to the asylum and just the tension builds. Like, when we first hear about Hannibal, and when she showed, he shows her that picture of what he did to the nurse, like it really sets the audience up for the beast that is in its cave. Yeah, absolutely. They drop a lot of sort of hints and kind of subcontext about what she's getting herself into. So when she's talking to uh, um, her superior Crawford and he's saying, don't let him get inside your head, don't mm-hmm. say anything personable. And then of course she has to almost immediately. So you know, okay. Uh, in doing that, it sets up a lot of the tension and the conflict between those two. That's right. Yeah, and yeah. when she goes down there to the cells, like the first cell is one of a, a black patient just staring at her menacingly. The second is one that's gig- like giggling at her. Yeah, and the he's almost third, nice. <laughs> the third is one that just starts yelling all kinds of sexual insults at her, like he can smell, she says, quote, I can smell your cunt. And the transition, the, each patient goes from, from crazy to crazier, and you'd think Hannibal would be the craziest patient in the room. But when we finally meet him, he's acting all gentleman-like like he's mm-hmm. talking to an well, old very friend. charismatic yeah. right and that's that's very... a trait of psychopathy but yeah i love that i think that, that whole sequence is probably like my favorite scene in the film too when she's going down there and yeah each cell is like a little bit worse a little bit worse a little bit worse and then of course she has to go all the way down to the end of the hallway where the chair has been set up for her and you're assuming that's going to be the worst and the scariest but then you know he's kind of charming and he's he's not the worst right. uh to talk to right off the bat <laughs> right yeah like and he's sophisticated able to hold a conversation that's right yeah. yeah and the fact that he was he just stands there like he was waiting for her the whole entire time like he knew she was coming or rather as jonathan dim implied he he could smell her from a distance let that sink in for a while just uh. yeah yeah it, it's quite disturbing and i think I, I could be wrong in this one but just kind of in my reading about the movie, I, I believe um, Thomas Harris's first novel ends with a line that says, um, "There's a, there's a young agent from the FBI oh, right, Adam, yeah. who's waiting to see you." Yeah, yeah. Oh, right. So he, before, like outside of the film, he is expecting her to be there. Oh right, yeah. I remember. I, I actually uh, read the book um, Red Dragon, which is takes place before Silence. Yeah. Yeah. How is that? I've never read any of Thomas Harris's works. Oh, Red Dragon. You will. You'll really love it. It's an interesting read. It's perhaps so far one of the most suspenseful novels I've ever read, really. And this was before, back then, before I decided to take uh, broadcasting, I had an interest in psychology. So I read this book and I was just blown away. It has elements of thriller, crime, horror, just everything you'd expect from a Thomas Harris or Hannibal novel. It's really good. It should give you a good read, really. Yeah, I've actually been wanting to check it out. I picked up like a from a free little library, Sounds of the Lambs. Mm-hmm. So I have like an old paperback. I just I never opened it. <laughs> More interested in the film itself, but um, yeah, I like to read as well. So yeah. I should check it out. Same here. Get a little more context as well. Yeah. Here, yeah. And about that opening, to continue with the opening scene, like just the one thing I notice about Silence is how. Jonathan Dem, the high pronounce his name by the way, a uh, Dem or is it? Dem? I think it, I think it's Demi. Ah, uh, Demi. Like, uh, almost like Demi Moore. <laughs> like the, I love uh, Jonathan Demi's. He really makes good use of the close-ups in the film. Oh, absolutely! Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, yeah. Like, I really like those close-ups. Like um, you you'd think that Hannibal, you know, despite him being a killer, he's trapped in a cell, so it should be good, we should be safe, right? Wrong, dead wrong. Like, the close, the good use of close-ups, it makes it look as if Clarice is the one who is trapped and Hannibal is the one who is outside, all in control of the situation. Absolutely. Yeah, they they use that extreme close-up to just give him so much visual power. Like, he's got that piercing stare, right? And she's outside the cell, but his whole face is filling the frame and just, like, staring into her soul and reading all her mind's secrets before she's even spoken. 
Right, yeah. And the fact that she's sitting in a chair for most of the scene really helps establish the power mm-hmm. difference. Absolutely, yeah. And interestingly, I also, no- I also noticed that they like have almost the exact same color of eyes, too. Mm-hmm. So it-, it shows his close-up filling the frame and his piercing stare with like the icy cold blue eyes. And then, mm-hmm. it-, and then it shows kind of the bond between the two when it switches to her uh, filling the frame and her eyes being the exact same. But instead, she's kind of... Instead of giving power back, she's kind of receiving it. She's more in the sense of like uh, the vulnerable role mm-hmm. outside the cell, but still she's vulnerable to this like highly sophisticated psychiatrist who can kind of read her mind, you know? And at this point in the movie, we still don't know that he can talk somebody straight to death, you know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah, it's dangerous to get into a conversation with them for sure. Oh yes, it is. And and this really plays well into the earlier warning she got that don't let Hannibal get inside your head. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then of course she has to, to move the plot forward to, I guess, try to convince him to help her on the case. Uh, quid pro quo. That's right, right yeah. <laughs> and of course, that first scene is where we got the, the one of the most iconic lines in cinema. A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. And fun fact, that scene, of course, was improvised by Hopkins himself. Wow, that's amazing. That's that's just one of the reasons that like I don't I don't know if that Sean Connery would have improvised the most iconic line in the movie. So great casting. He's unbelievable really. Oh yeah, he is. And the thing that like Hannibal, we all know he is definitely one of the greatest villains of all time, but what I love is that we know he's a killer, we know he's insane, but despite being a killer, he doesn't quite act like one. He acts like all oh, you know friendly polite like he's talking to a friend or having them over for a party he doesn't even swear or even threaten clarice and that's something i find interesting like everyone in the film like that whenever clarice is surrounded by men they like underestimate her or just want treat her like all sec- sexually but hannibal who is supposed to be her enemy is the only one that shows any form of respect for her yeah that's actually so interesting he that's totally right like he's actually he plays the protector role right like before she comes back to interview him for the second time he makes sure that the abuser in the cell over is dealt with and um, when that incident happens in that scene he also calls her back gives her more information tells her what she needs to do and then sends her on her way quickly so he is being kind of almost the father figure, which is super creepy. <laughs> and then, uh, um, yeah, he lulls her into that kind of false sense of friendship and protection, and then that uh, allows him to develop develop that relationship. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I know that too. Like, yeah, Hannibal is more like a, like a protector, I'd say. Like, yeah, he, he, he kills people, that's true, but he's more like... In his mind, I think he's like doing society a favor by killing those that he feels are, you know, rude or disrespectful or unprofessional. Yeah, he definitely has his own moral code, and he never once apologizes in the film. Like when he says that he's kind of resigned. Sorry about that. No worries, Turn that off. No worries. Uh, when he says that he's resigned to being locked up for life, like he knows he's never going to get out, um, but he doesn't say like, you know. He never shows remorse or regret. He never feels any empathy for his victims. He never, he never expresses that because he believes that what he did was right. Like he, he kills those he wants to, and he's happy with that. He also has that kind of um, complex where he thinks he's like the smartest person probably in the whole country. Well, he so is. he's like, yeah, he, he's right. He was right to kill this person, right to do that. Uh, he's smart enough to influence or confuse or conflict any person and kind of manipulate them in that sense. So he's. He's definitely doing that, and he does that with Clarice as well. But, as you said, he shows her that respect that she never gets from any other men in the movie. Instead, they're always condescending towards her. Yeah, like, yeah. it's more, like I'd say, a worthy opponent-type relationship between uh, Clarice and Hannibal. In fact, I think Clarice knows that. Rem- when, like, I remember when Hannibal escaped, and she said... She wasn't worried that he might get her because he would consider it to be rude. Yeah. Yeah, 
he says, um, the world's more interesting with you in it, and I hope that you would show me the same respect. She, of course, says, I can't do that, sets up for the sequel, that I'm going to hunt you down, but they definitely have uh, a real mutual sense of respect, which is, again, just kind of bonkers <laughs> that, that 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 would happen, right? Yeah, yeah it, it gives me some parallels to the dynamic between Sherlock Holmes and uh, Jim Moriarty. Very interesting take, yeah, for sure. They, they do... They do have a relationship like that. Yeah, like, and yeah, and surprisingly, Anthony Hopkins really stole every scene he's seen. And despite being the supposed main antagonist, well, not really main since it's Buffalo Bill, he's only in the film for just 16 minutes. But he dominates. <laughs> right. <laughs> Rules the film, really. Yeah, there's a very strong subplot with him. Like, yes, he is not the... Uh, not the main antagonist, not the... He's not leading the conflict, but he's such an integral role to the film. That's right. He, like, drives the plot forward, I'd say. Yeah. And let's talk about a bit more about, like, the, one of the most overlooked characters in the film. That would be Buffalo Bill. Like, some people tend to mistake Hannibal as the, the big bad, but in fact, it's Buffalo Bill that drives the conflict of the film. Just... Oh god! Like, good lord, he—he's such a creep. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, well, when he convinces that girl to get into the van with the couch, it's like, no, no. <laughs> like, yeah, sure, you should go into the van first and pull the couch in. That, that great, really smart. <laughs> right, and and what surprised me is that I know Ted Levine, who plays Buffalo Bill from this series called Monk where he plays uh, a police detective, and it's really chilling seeing him playing the exact opposite of that in silence. It's, it rubs the lotion on its skin or else <laughs> he gets the hose again. Yeah, another iconic line for sure. Yeah, the performance is great for him as well. It is overshadowed in a lot of ways by Anthony Hopkins, but he should still be respected a lot for um, the energy that he brings to the role. Right, yeah, and fun fact, I don't know if you knew this, but Buffalo Bill is actually inspired by the crimes of real-life serial killer and body snatcher Ed Gein, who, by the way, inspired other fictional serial killers such as Norman Bates from Psycho, me having mommy issues, and <laughs> Leatherface for basically wearing a... A mask made of skin, and his house was filled with human bones and the like and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I did. I did read about that, and then also um, specifically the way he lured uh, Catherine in the film was based off. I think Ted Bundy was doing things mm -hmm. like that, like tricking people into his van, basically, and then taking off. Ooh, yeah. God. yeah. Well, fiction inspired by real life in that sense, for sure. <laughs> yeah, and. The thing is that at this t I think at, at this time if a film would not like Silence of the Lambs would not really hold a lot of reverence if it was made today given how it portrays the the main villain of the film is a a trans a transsexual I think that would like a transsexual wannabe even that's right like yeah. it's not even yeah yeah definitely a complicated um, subject matter as well and in the film when they're talking about how transsexuals are actually passive and they don't really have uh, any record of violence at all so um Lecter is saying like no he's not a transsexual he he covets that he wants to be that it, it, it adds another layer of kind of depth to his uh, psychopathy mm. it's very interesting yeah yeah like like Hannibal I, I find Hannibal and uh, Buffalo Bill, even though they're antagonists, each of them contrasts each other. Like, Hannibal is, like, Buffalo is more obviously a killer than Hannibal. Like, Hannibal's more, you know, refined, polite, gentleman-like, and Buffalo is more feral, more unhinged. Like, he is, <laughs> like, it's the par it's the parallels between them are I mean, I mean the contrast between them are obvious but that doesn't make them any less dangerous mm -hmm. and when you do see um buffalo bill's residence it's like extremely cluttered mm -hmm. dirty dark dingy and there's just like there's things everywhere there's so many things kind of in every shot that you'd have to pause and go frame by frame to even look at them all but i would imagine 
like you know Dr. Hannibal Lecter's um, home office or something would probably be very clean and fastidious mm. and uh, highly organized. I don't think there would be too much astray. So there would be a difference there as well between the two. Right. Yeah. I I didn't even notice that the first time. Wow. That's very perceptive, right? Well, one of the one of the reasons I thought about that actually was uh, fairly recently that house was sold, like just to some civilians. They they sold the property, and then I looked at the um, listing photos, and of course there was nothing in the house. Like it's empty. Like the tables are clear, the curtains are new, and it's very bright. And there's there's an there isn't anything in there, so I was just wondering, like, how long did it take the art team to fill up that house with junk? Wow. Probably, probably at least a couple of weeks. <laughs> wow, very perceptive, man. Very perceptive. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. <laughs> and, and even the to pa- highlight their differences, there, there's even their taste in music. Like Buffalo Bill, you see how he, when he creates his woman suit, he's dancing to. Uh, like 90s pop music and Hannibal classical music while he is um, having some cops over for dinner. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He probably imagines himself as one of those world famous composers in his own way. Yeah. Like, and I want to talk more about more of an anatomy of the scene, like that scene, the scene where Hannibal and Clarice talk to each other about Clarice's past, about her motivation to stop the lambs from screaming. I think that to me is the the most important seat part of the entire film because it speaks a lot about about Clarice, her the protagonist's motivations. Yeah, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Well, first off, I think that is the the perfect scene where the close-ups are used to good effect like shows Clarice they is her reason for joining the FBI which is she does it more out of guilt out of redemption like she wants to save the world from the monsters that run amok for sure and wants to follow in her father's footsteps in terms of the law enforcement but wants to take it a step further and save the innocent save the lambs mm, yeah and what does Lecter order in the next scene? Lamb chops. Like, yeah. that is so sick. Yeah, yeah, it is sick. Not that he eats it. No. <laughs> Too busy escaping. Right, yeah. And more on the screaming of the lamb scene, aside from the scene where we, you know, where we finally get, in a way, the, the title drop of the film. Also, Clarice just Jodie Foster really sh- demonstrates Clarice's vulnerability in in this scene, and you can, and I notice how even each the camera keeps panning closer with every shot, just to show it really shows a lot of emotion in both characters. It really highlights their emotion a lot. Just it's masterful. Yeah, it really is, and and that's the thing you don't see actually that too often in films. They're using kind of like a double-pointed view spectrum with like extreme close-ups versus just your standard over-the-shoulder shot. Like they really bring um, the faces fully into the frame, and they uh, take the background out of focus, so you have to focus instead on the subtleties of the actors, their eyes, their mouth, and everything that they're doing in their performance. And it, it really it brings every conversation when they use that technique like really uh into the foreground like you're not you're not able to escape um what Hannibal Lecter is saying to you or what Jack Crawford is telling you you're not able to escape that or even later on when um Clarice is talking with her FBI friend and they're kind of trying to figure out um figure out who Buffalo Bill is later on in the film again they use those extreme close-ups and the the actors are staring almost directly into the camera like it's just slightly off so it's, it, it looks like you are having that conversation Ooh, yeah yeah that's right yeah the, the fourth wall will not protect you at all <laughs> yeah and that that just really even it brings up the urgency of the film even higher that's right yeah and again that's what i admire like silence of the lambs is as a huge fan of the horror genre, I think this is a perfect film to study how to terrify the audience. Like, the horror in Silence of the Lambs, personally to me, is not about 
serial killers or a body count, but more about vulnerability, about who has the power. Like, let's use an example, a classic example, like to like Alien, for example. The reason why the first Alien was far more scary than the sequel, like yes, there were aliens, but in the sequel, they they were a, a ragtag team of Marines with guns who could easily yeah. match or kill the alien. But it's an the action first, film exactly. at that point, yeah. right? Yeah. And in the first one, like the crew are just engineers; they're not fighters. They're vulnerable. They have no matter how smart or how tough they are, they don't have the upper hand. They don't have control of the situation. And I think that same notion is also in Silence of the Lambs, where they're trying, it's between Clarice and Hannibal, or the FBI for that matter. It's like, no matter how tough they are, they just cannot control this this monster, this creature, They no matter how hard they try. Yeah, and... Uh, just to go back to the beginning again, she's descending into the very basement of the psychiatric hospital, and they have so many weapons on the wall. Well, there's those two, um, I could just name Barney maybe, but there's those two kind of security guard uh, nurse figures down in the basement, and on their wall they have like so many weapons, right? And it's like, okay, are they going to get out of their cage and run towards you out to gun them down? Like it's, it just really goes to show that even locked up, Hannibal Lecter is such a danger that you need 25 guns just to feel safe at all. And that that also reminds me of when they're, um, like, it's kind of a, a very muted color palette throughout the film. Like, it's just kind of light blues, mm-hmm. a little bit desaturated. But right when she gets downstairs, the first thing you see, red. The, the cage is red. It's completely lit in red. It's like red bars. It's almost like she's descended into hell. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Really and they, they use red specifically throughout the film um, to kind of keep that motif going as well. Wow. Yeah. The, the color palette really sets the tone of the film, really helps to speak some of the themes as well. Yeah. And another thing. Well, in a sense, sorry to interrupt. Oh, in a sense, it's baby blue too, right? It's the vulnerability as well. It's baby blue. Even the FBI, the whole uh, training facility that she's at, the wall colors light blue. It's it's not like a strong black or anything that's like forceful and dominant. It's and same with the cover that you have the background behind you, right? The cover of the film, pale white, light blue, almost a deathly pallor. Again, it's it's just very much um, sets up kind of that power dynamic, that innocence. Wow. Wow! Wow! You must have uh, very good. You have very good uh, eyes, Ryan. I like to. I like to pay attention to the color <laughs> movies a lot, actually. Nice. Yeah. And uh, something else I'd like to add about um, Hannibal too is that another thing that's aside from the fact that you know he kills and eats people, another thing that's terrifying is that just his very presence alone. Like he looks just like everyone else. Like just this average this average man someone you'd see in a crowd someone that sits beside you at your work and you never even notice like that's what makes it terrifying like he's someone that can easily trick you like you'd think like at first when you hear when you first get that intro about Hannibal that he's the most dangerous patient in the facility and a monster you'd think he'd be like this like deformed man or something that makes him look like a monster, but no, he's a completely average, normal-looking guy. It's terrifying. It goes to show that uh, a man's evil isn't seen in his face, but more in his actions alone. Absolutely. Yeah, the monster is under the surface, because what you see is kind of a kindly old man, you know? Somebody you wouldn't look twice at. No. Yeah. yeah. And... As a, f- a further example of Anthony Hopkins' fine acting performance, one of his best performances, I'd say, is that scene where he is, you know, tie- tied up in a gurney and he's talking to the senator. Like, that... And he Anthony Hopkins really knocked it out of the park, as always. But this time, the camera was just focused on his just on his face and he's not even moving and without moving he can still perform great acting just wow it's genius it is genius it is and 
again, it's like, okay, he's completely strapped down. He even has a mask over his face, so he can't take any quick chomps out of your tongue or something, right? Like, he's completely under lockdown, surrounded by armed men and a, a group focused only on containing him, yet still the power dynamic is, like, unbelievable. Like, he's able to upset the senator. She says, send him back to Baltimore. She's going to leave. Everybody's leaving because they just they can't even handle to be around this guy, and he's... He's so strapped down, but he's still able to, just with the tiny movements of his lips and a, a piercing stare, he's able to freak the hell out of everyone. <laughs> right? Just, wow. Oh. Jesus Christ. Like, wow. Just, it's really amazing, really. I bet. Don't you wish that sometimes when your parents ground you, you wish you could do that, even when you're from Rwanda? <laughs> wow. So good. Yeah. yeah and the scene where he taunts the senator about his daughter like Hannibal we know Hannibal was a bad guy but just taunting senator about her daughter about her daughter possibly being dying that was a pretty dick move mm -hmm. yeah it was and he needed to use that just to um I guess play his cards even stronger right he had to like double down on what he was doing there because she could have left and just ran away to Baltimore but he wanted to say that line he wanted to risk being sent off just so that he could have even more control over the situation so he played his cards there but it worked out for him it did and one more thing too and he i also love her suit <laughs> yeah she's, yeah oh. and let's talk about more about the symbolism and themes in the film like for example this moth that's head moth <laughs> like at its core i think the main Probably the main theme of this film is about change in a figurative sense. Like, with Buffalo Bill wanting to basically change who he is as a person, because given how he was abused his whole life and he wants to escape that and create something better in his own twisted way. Yeah, he's obsessed with the transformation, right? And that's also leads to kind of the um, cocoons going into the back of the throat. His victims are um, transforming into a new reality, that being death. And he's one step closer to his transformation that he's been coveting and, and desiring after throughout the film. And then, um, interestingly, his first victim, the one that he knew, she also had the butterfly transformation, um, little kind of piece of art spinning from the roof. So she was also obsessed with transformation. And you can see kind of in the mise-en-scene uh, when Clarice is going through her room that there's like a dieting book on the table and there's a Madonna poster on the wall so she's clearly aspiring to change into something that she isn't as well you know what I mean like maybe she's self-conscious about her weight or her size or what have you but there's there's so many similarities you can draw between that and, and Buffalo Bill too because he's just crazy for uh, the transformation wow wow I, I, I've the, the Madonna poster like her bedroom I've seen the film twice already and I didn't even notice that I can't take credit. I saw I saw that on a YouTube video. <laughs> But definitely, that, those are the hidden elements, right? There's this movie has more depth than people give it credit for, and people are giving it like they're they're crediting it highly already. Wow, nice man, first wow, and and yeah, like and one on before we continue with the whole change theme, I noticed that the scene with the whole it rubs the lotion on its skin scene and where Catherine is crying down the hole and Buffalo Bill is like imitating her cries at first I thought at first viewing I thought he was taunting her but second viewing I thought he was trying to imitate her trying to figure out how to scream like a woman which is the very one mm. thing he seeks to become yeah you could be totally right I, I only picked up on kind of the mocking aspect or whatever and he's just wants to have that power dynamic and be like, okay, scream as much as you want, I'll scream too, nobody's going to hear you, but you could be entirely right with that analysis for sure. Yeah, and thank you. And um, <clears throat> to continue on with the whole theme of change, I think that same theme applies with Clarice, how she's gone from being just this like FBI, just low-level FBI agent to a full-blown FBI hero once she apprehends, or in this case neutralizes Buffalo Bill. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's amazing that she's only a trainee the whole time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And yeah. I just, let's, we've talked 
a lot about Anthony Hopkins' performance. How about we talk more about Jodie Foster? Like, I feel sometimes people tend to overlook her performance inside of the main antagonist. Like, she... She really... Clarice Starling is really an intriguing character to watch. She is in a film that's filled with people who are at best just shady and at worst just psychopaths. Clarice is the closest thing that this film has to a hero, the one who is just unambiguously good. You're right. And in some senses that that goodness is used against her. Like it's explicit in the film that she's used as a pawn. Uh, Lecter won't talk to anyone else, but maybe an attractive young woman who has an interest in psychology and, and psychopathy and serial killers might might be just the device they need to, to get a little out of him. And then, of course, you know, Crawford says, don't tell him anything personable. But does he really mean that? Because he wants success in the case more than he cares about Lecter getting inside that girl's head, probably. So, yeah, they use her as a pawn. But throughout the film, like, she is really good. Like, I haven't, I don't think I've seen every Jodie Foster film that she's ever done. But I've seen um, certainly a handful, and this is one of my favorite performances. It's just, again, with the extreme close-ups that the director is using, um, it really takes a good actor to show off those subtleties and to feel that emotion, or whether it's that vulnerability or, or what have you. And I never feel out of place. Like, it never takes me from the story um, when I'm seeing her close-ups. I definitely only feel more engaged in the uh, plot and the conflict and what's going to happen to her. It's in here, yeah. Yeah, me too. And for in a film that, despite the film having absolutely no real actual live lamps, I think Clar- the from my perspective, I think Clarice is the lamb in the film because lambs represent kindness, innocence, people, things that do not suspect that there is anything dark or evil in their little world. And Clarice, I say, is the the lamb, the only who is represents the innocence in this film that's full of darkness and shady, evil characters. And if you say that the FBI is using her as a pawn, then she would be, in essence, a what you call a sacrificial lamb. I'd say so. I think absolutely the lambs represent Clarice in terms of her innocence and kindness. Yes, and she's also extremely isolated. Like, at the beginning when the tragic music is playing and she's going through the obstacle course, she's completely alone. But later you see groups of people exercising together. So, like, why is she on her own? You know what I mean? Like, she's totally vulnerable, isolated, Mm -hmm. but still um, such a force in and of herself. Like, she's able to neutralize Buffalo Bill, win the day, become the hero, and she does it basically all by herself. Like, when the FBI are on that um, the high-resource team airplane, they're going to Chicago to apprehend Jane Gum but she is left out of it. Mm. They're not even going to give her necessarily the credit for um, her work capturing the guy, but then, of course, she happens to be in the right location, and they're in the wrong location, and she's, again, alone, and she has to take him on alone, just like at the beginning of the film. That's right. Yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, I noticed that she's mostly alone in the, in the film, yeah. And also, bonus point, I give this room bonus points for that, that scene where the FBI, we think the FBI has ca- finally caught Buffalo Bill, but it turns out they're in the wrong location and Clarice is in the right location. That is a fine, that's some fine directing. Just mm-hmm. really, and also great editing as well. Just top notch, kudos. Yeah, yeah, and then... Of course, she, again, like, I mean, they take it to the extreme by the end of the film. The night vision goggles versus complete darkness. Like, she couldn't be more isolated and alone. And it, it uh, some people might be reminded of the beginning when she's going through the gun course and she doesn't check her corner and is killed. And now it's like she can't check any of her corners. Everywhere is a corner and she can be killed from anywhere. And it's just that extremely quick reaction time from hearing the gun cock and luck that she happens to spin around. The bullets miss her, but hers strike their intended target. Wow. Mm. You're good, man. You're very good. Uh, Uh, Well, it's a great film, right? There's so much to talk about in this one. Yeah. This is only one film, yeah. Not just multiple ones we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Well, it's too bad that they couldn't have a sequel with Jodie Foster again, you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. I I don't know if um, if the book had even been written yet and so by the time they got around like 10 years later to making the sequel she wasn't she wasn't interested yeah which is too bad because mm-hmm. in some ways 
um, the one with Julianne Moore is not good. <laughs> no, 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 she's <laughs> not good at all. No, Jodie Foster, she's just irreplaceable. Yeah, and absolutely. More on the theme of you know um, Clarice being isolated as well, like, and to pertain her symbolism of the lambs, like it's also kind of ironic that, in the sense that this little lamb, the only one that that truly understands her and really gets help from is Hannibal, who is by in essence the wolf, I'd say. So it's basically the lamb getting some help from the wolf. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you have to think about again, just what? How many layers are there to Hannibal Lecter's plot to escape? So I saw this thing on Reddit, which is completely unfounded. It's just a fun fan theory. But somebody said, um, somebody looked deeper into the connection between him and Buffalo Bill. So it's like, okay, he had that patient, um, Benjamin Raspell, and Benjamin Raspell's lover was Jane Gum, and so he was recommended to Hannibal Lecter. But and um, but is it possible that Hannibal Lecter had Jane Gum as a patient for longer than anybody knew about and actually drove him towards uh, his psychopathy and his homicidal tendencies versus trying to heal him just almost to have a trump card for if he was ever to escape or to ever be captured so if you think about Hannibal Lecter's in prison he uses um, his abilities his knowledge of the killer on the loose to get additional freedoms did he create a killer so that if he was ever locked up he could have a trump card use his knowledge and to um vote for like whatever uh a more minimum security prison something with a window something like that or is it just a, a complete happenstance complete coincidence that he happens to know um a lot about a killer on the loose hmm. that is an interesting concept yeah i Knowing Hannibal, I'd say I'd go with the second option, that he basically made James Gum into a killer. So if so basically this everything that's happened has been already arranged by Hannibal since the very beginning. That's what you're saying. Exactly. But the one thing to consider maybe against that theory is just like probably there's no killer that Hannibal could create that's smarter than he is, so the odds of them being captured first and sent to prison first are pretty high. But as it happens in the plot of the film, he is captured and Buffalo Bill is still on the loose. And so he's able to kind of vie for additional freedoms by giving information about this guy. But yeah, like, I mean, he was almost a patient or was a patient of Hannibal Lecter's. Hmm. Wow. That, I gotta give it a look after we're done with this episode. Yeah. Yeah. I'll send you the link (laughs) on Reddit. Yeah. And, um. Again, with that Benjamin Raspel character, that's the severed head she finds in the mm-hmm. storage locker. And when she when she finds it, um, it's covered in red cloth. Like she has to pull off a red cloth to reveal uh, the head in the jar. So again, that's just that's Hannibal Lecter's motif. That's the killer's motif. It's the red that pierces the more muted tones. Wow, wow, man, you <laughs> that is insightful. Very perceptive, man. Like. Well, yeah, yeah, directors, like, if they're not using color, then they're probably not um, winning awards, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And they say that everything in the frame is supposed to be purposeful. I don't know if everyone's really doing that, but you shouldn't stick something in front of the frame unless it has a specific purpose, whether that's, like, three layers down in subcontext or whether it's supposed to play a more um, direct role in a viewer's uh, perception of the scene, but you know something bad's going to be under that red cloth because the previous time you saw red was Hannibal Lecter's cage. Mm. Well, actually, he has the glass, but the bars that you see in his hallway. Wow. Yeah. wow. Nice, man. This is, wow, this is really good. <laughs> and, yeah. And then for a more uh, level on symbolism as well, um, I noticed some of Hannibal's drawings in his cell. One of them during his escape was of a woman holding a lamb. Like, I think the woman in the drawing was Clarice, which if it was, then that also shows his, that he has, that foreshadowing from that earlier scene, how he has good photographic memory with his drawing of Florence and his drawing Absolutely. of Clarice. Yeah. 
And the fact yeah, that he, he can remember, he can remember like amazing detail. And he's, of course, he's a good artist too. <laughs> it's like this guy's everything plus a cannibal. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. Cannibal yeah. is base would be a great poster child for magnificent bastard. <laughs> yeah. And something else for more added detail on this film, I noticed how the film plays on one of my favorite tropes of horror, which is nothing is scarier. It's a trope where ho the horror comes not from visual element, from but from the lack of visual element, the fear of the unknown, like in the first scene before we first meet Hannibal and Dr. Chilton shows Clarice the photo of what Hannibal did to the nurse we don't see it we don't see what he did to the nurse but knowing Hannibal we are very thankful we didn't get to see it and then the next one where you know where they're analyzing the body we don't see the whole body just glimpses of it but not seeing it that doesn't make it any better at all yeah, you're totally right. And they use the dialogue to kind of fill your mind with the imagery of what of what he does to the nurse. And then later on, even with that information and knowing how ingeniously devious he is, you still don't expect that the police officer lying on the ground is actually Hannibal with a cut off face over That's his right. face. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's unbelievable. That's probably my second favorite scene, just Ooh. based on the whole hoodwink. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And another time if i remember this trope is being used is the scene where catherine is in the hole and she sees like there are these fingernails littered all over the oh, hole absolutely god yeah. that like, and the thing about buffalo bill is that we never see him kill anyone and that makes it and that doesn't make it any better because just seeing the aftermath of what he does is enough to scare us seeing um, the capture of Catherine, seeing the skin suits on the mannequin, seeing the clawed off fingernails from people trying to escape the well. You don't, you don't ever have to see Buffalo Bill actually committing a murder to know that he is like terrifying. They, they fill those gaps just with this preparation and with the futile escape attempts shown through that bloody claw mark. That's right, yeah. Just, and yeah, that, see like, I, that's why Silence of the Lambs just high, just increases my respect for classic horror because in today's market horror, the market is just oversaturated with jump scares. Like, not saying they're always a bad thing. Like, so many, there are so many good horror films that use jump scares, but when there's none, it just feels more realistic when the horror is just building up and happens there casually rather than just throwing at your face. Yeah, you have a period, like a two hour period of complete um, unsettling feelings within your body, like your cortisol's up, your, your palms might be sweaty, where it's a jump scare, like I jump at jump scares often, you know what I mean? But once it's done, it deflates quickly. It's okay. not as much of a, a slow build, so it doesn't, have, it doesn't have that strength, it's more of like an acute thing versus, you know, a chronic feeling of unsettlingness <laughs> yeah yeah and um oh what's about to say all oh, right and yeah like the th and the thing about these films that use jump scares it's basically the same as someone you laughing because somebody tickled you it's just not the same really it's just like silence of the lambs is a film that anyone who wants to make a horror film or just loves them should study if they want to terrify the audience and all you need silence of the lambs proves that to terrify them all you just need is good directing acting writing and a really complex and interesting villain yeah you're you're absolutely right like it comes from um both the characters but also all the elements of filmmaking that build up that tension and that and that fear in audiences like many people left that theater when they first saw it with like a sick feeling in their stomach and and all of that led towards the awards that sounds of the lambs won and interestingly when i was doing my research for this film i actually read some well some partial criticisms so quentin tarantino specifically was trying to tear down silence of the lambs ending and boost his own uh, filmmaking 
sorry, his own filmmaking kind of prowess, and it was it was a little bit disrespectful in, in my no. opinion. So he was saying that in his um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the Spawn Ranch scene with Brad Pitt had way more terror than the ending of Silence of the Lambs with the night vision and in the basement with Clarice and Buffalo Bill. And his argument was that um, that was suspense. And suspense, in his definition, was um, that you know what's going to happen. And audiences would know that Jamie, Jamie Foster's not going to die, or sorry, Jodie Foster's not going to die. You, you're scared still, you're, like, you're still unsettled, but that you know that she's going to be okay and it's all going to work out. Whereas in his film, you didn't know what was going to happen on Spawn Ranch, and maybe Brad Pitt was going to die. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so he was saying, that's terror, is not knowing what's going to happen, and it builds up over time. And his, he said that his his scene was better. And like, yes, the Spawn Ranch scene was certainly unsettling and it was better, but like, you don't have to go back in time and trash on these old masterpieces just to like boost your own ego, you know what I mean? So it was a little bit irritating because not only that, but if you take it out of the context of the time, as far as I know, there hadn't yet been a really scary night vision goggles scene in a movie by the time Silence of the Lambs came out. Like I was, I was probably one of the first ever. And um, again, like you have 100 to, to zero in terms of the um, power dynamic. He can see, she can't. He has a gun and she does too, but she can't see where to put her bullets and he can't. He's always behind her reaching towards her head and trying to grab her hair or whatever. And so I think um, just in terms of technical definitions, I don't think he's quite right by saying that suspense and not terror. I think audiences did feel terror. Whether or not she was going to live, they were still scared in that scene because of um, everything that they had built up. And yeah, so a little bit um, disagree with that criticism. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. That was that was a dick move. I I like well, and all, but yeah, that was pretty dickish. I, I don't hear anyone going around and saying the Spawn Ranch scenes like the most terrifying of all time. Yeah, here we are, thirty years later, still talking about the ending, the Silence of the Lambs. And I love it too when she shoots him that the bullets break through the window and then light floods the basement and you can finally see you finally have the relief of the suspense and the terror that you were feeling. Yeah, that was a really, really well done scene. Like, it's like in most, usually in most horror movies, there's this cheap ending where everybody dies, but this one felt different. It really, usually horror films tend to, some of them anyways, tend to stumble a bit when they reach the, the ending or the third act, but that I feel it really highlighted the the themes of, you know, vulnerability and change, how Clarice has basically gone from trainee to a full-blown FBI agent, and really, and really great character development on her part, how she's gone from being scared and manipulated to being just, she basically saved the day all on her own. It's fascinating, really, in my opinion. And then it's, it's nice as well, because when you then go to the next scene, it's almost like the ending to Star Wars where they're handing out medals, like a, a, in A New Hope, and everybody's a huge, huge hero, and there's a parade, and they're handing out medals. But then you realize she's not getting an award. She's just getting her FBI, um, her official FBI status, mm-hmm. just like everyone else. Like, everyone is crossing that stage, not just her. So I think that was nice as well, that they didn't almost over-glorify her at the mm-hmm. end. Too. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I think I would, that would be... If they did that, it would, it would have been overkill since she already had her moment to shine when she killed mm-hmm. Buffalo Bill. Yeah, and then they have kind of the intricacies where she's shaking hands with uh, her superior, which, you know, they talked a little bit about what his feelings towards her might have been in the film, and they just kind of end on the handshake, but they zoom in, it's close-up, you see the tight squeeze, and his right. fingers are actually moving the skin of her hand enough that you know that he's like, he's putting more into that handshake than um, just anyone else would be getting on FBI official celebration day. Right. Yeah. 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 And that also that also call, a good callback to Hannibal's statement about when he asked Clarice about her relationship with Crawford and how he might be you know sexually interested in her. Yeah. Really yeah, nice stuff. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I want to know if you know like a bit about Hannibal's escape, like. I, I've watched the film twice and I still can figure out how did he get his hands on that pen on that bullpen like remember he he like Dr. Chilton at uh, the scene with where Hannibal was confronting the senator he had a pen but then he realized he he forgot his pen so he had to ask the other yes. cop to ask him yeah, for he's the reaching pen. his pocket the other guy just hands him one you know yeah, like, yeah. 
Yeah, I, uh, I don't know if they ever really showed him like snagging the pen, but I believe there was a close-up of the pen, and then later the guy's searching, and you know, okay, the pen's missing. What does that mean? And he, he, yeah, he uses that to escape. Very, um, a lot of layers into his escape, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. that is probably the greatest prison escape I've ever seen in film. Well, the whole thing's orchestrated. Like, even the fact that he's in a different place that's easier to escape from, and then escapes from that easier place. Like, he, he set it up quite ahead of time. Wow. Yeah. Hannibal, Hannibal, you magnificent <laughs> bastard. And, and even when he puts himself in the... When he puts his hands behind his cell to be handcuffed, the last thing he tells to the police is ready when you are that is a deadly euphemism like he's like making it implicitly clear that he's gonna kill them without even saying i'm going to kill you genius yeah yeah there's so many subtleties to the dialogue it's really it is quite impressive yeah yeah Yeah. well and and just another layer is escape too is he uses uh that dr chilton like the guy who's whatever his eight years long nemesis he uses that guy's ego against against him because if uh, Dr. Chilton didn't come in and admit that um, Clarice's agreement was completely false and not based off anything and there was no animal studies island that he was going to be transferred to, uh, he, he might not have gotten away with it. But instead, Chilton's like, no, I have a better plan. We're going to transfer you here. And the senator signed off on it. I called her. And so, of course, that's the one that allows him his freedom. Mm, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed that too, like, this was basically, like, Chilton basically became his own downfall because he let his own pride control his actions, and in doing so, he let his nemesis basically get the better of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he allows his nemesis to escape, and then later, um, to eat him, most likely. <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah. He's, he's the friend for dinner at the very end of the film. Yeah. yeah. And where the yeah. hell did he get that wig? <laughs> Or Nick I don't is, know. Who did he get that Who did he get that work from? Uh, yeah. So what are they in Cuba at the end, or somewhere like that? It seemed like it yeah. did. Yeah. Yeah. It did. Like, I love also how this film. It had a that was a fine example of a bittersweet ending too. Like Buffalo Bill is dead, but Hannibal is still on the loose. But to be fair, he did help Clarice catch the killer in the end, so he does get basically bonus points for helping you know the enemy mm-hmm. of my enemy is your friend yes he certainly does but in that sense he he gets more than his fair share of the freedoms he was bargaining for you know total escape and with a guy like that who's so smart and so sophisticated that he could very well remain on the lam for the rest of his life right. never being caught again yeah. and one final note i'd like to add about the whole screaming of the lamb scene like and what is probably, I think, the most pivotal scene in the film, there are so many ways that scene could have failed. Like, they could have failed by showing, you know, a flashback of the ranch and Clarice running away with the lambs, but they didn't. And I think that's a good example of the where the whole tell-don't-show actually works, because we actually... We le- it lets our minds do the visual imagery, and it's not just it's not just Clarice telling a story, but she's also there's a lot of emotion. You can feel the the sadness, the whole how da- downer she is explaining that whole story. Yeah, the flashback would have like if they had used a flashback would have detracted a lot from the film because first of all, um, the child version of Jodie Foster is not going to have the same acting chops as Jodie Foster herself just mm-hmm. in the extreme close-up expression and then they're able to stay in that conversation between Anthony Hopkins and her and if he's only in the film for 16 minutes like you don't want to take away any of those 16 minutes you need the dynamic between those two actors to be at the forefront and then just allow the audience the imagination of her running away with the lamb they only show the flashback when she's looking at her father in the funeral home so that's that's better because instead of that you you wouldn't necessarily understand what she's thinking of you didn't show it in that sense but with the lambs they they tell you yeah Yeah. and also for more bonus points for this scene i really appreciate the fact that 
they didn't use any music at all for this scene. In fact, they, they used no music for Hannibal and Clarice's scenes. Like, they're all chilling in their own right, but I love how they didn't use any music, like any scare chords or any, like, psycho strings type music. It would, it would, like, there are so many ways these scenes could have failed because deep down, Clarice and Hannibal's interactions are the heart of Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, that's so interesting, too, because one thing I picked up on was that there is a ton of music in the film. Like, music is in basically every other scene. Like, there is a ton of music being used. So the fact that they left those scenes silent and just relied on the actors' um, dialogue and resonance between themselves, it was very interesting. Right, yeah. Like, the music in the film, it's helped tell the story. But in this case, it was the dialogue that helped tell the story in this case. I just love it. Just, wow, this... Wow, just this film is so, it's so well done in every way. I don't, like... It's yeah, it certainly just... still holds up. 30 years later, everyone listening to this episode, if you haven't rewatched it recently, time to check it out. Definitely. Kudos, Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, this Nick. Is... And, yeah, one last thing. Head to the Sin City website, everyone. We're posting a lot of critical film theory and analysis, and we'll be posting uh, a lot of articles on our favorite films and breakdowns of them. So check those out for sure. Thank you. Yes, definitely. Thank you, Ryan. And also, like, si all of these, without silence, none of these, there are so many horror films that should be watched today that don't rely on jump scares. And I think Silence of the Lambs helped inspire all these other films, like The Blair Witch Project, The Witch, and probably the perfect example, Hereditary. Yeah, just... Uh insane amount of suspense can be built without jump scares and and those are the ones that kind of really leave a lasting feeling on viewers exactly like the horror is just just comes out very naturally like something could happen in real life i'd say this is we're really showing progress as well in how to invoke that same feeling of terror and suspense into our audiences without relying on cheap tactics it's mm -hmm. masterful really yeah and it starts it starts with the story but they really built upon it with um the actors and the cinematography that they used so mm -hmm. and of course the music of course, yeah. <laughs> definitely definitely helps to build that tragic feeling and tragic sense throughout the film definitely yeah and since we are now at the one hour mark it's time to dissect our scenes. What is your favorite scene from Silence of the Lambs, Ryan Robinson? Yeah, my favorite scene has got to be uh, her first interaction with Hannibal Lecter. Everything that goes into that, including uh, when she has to run away at the end. And yeah, from top to bottom, it's it's really masterful. Like we spoke about a lot of the elements already, but everything they, they tell you leading up to it, um, the things to avoid, the things you can't do down there, all the rules for interacting with him, um, the weapons that they never mentioned but that are on the wall, the red that you see on the cage, and they also shoot um, from down looking up so you kind of get a different perspective right off the bat. You know this is gonna be a bit different. And like you said, they withheld the music from their uh, dialogue. And of course, he's at the end of the hallway. So every frightening interaction and everything she has to endure from all the other um, psychos on the ward, it all is leading up to the interaction with the, the worst guy, the, the worst villain. Then you get there, oh, he's like, maybe he's not so bad <laughs> in terms of uh, conversing with the guy, of course. Um, and, you know, closer, closer, I can't read it, can't, re can't read your identification. It's also like, he, he asked for her identification, but she doesn't have to say yes. It's like, man, I wouldn't be down here if I wasn't, up. like, I mean, everybody already knows that I'm from the FBI. I wouldn't be down here if I wasn't already certified. But why do you have to look? Why, sh why should she even let him have a look? And, of course, then she comes closer and he reads it and he says, oh, you're not even a real agent. This thing expires in a week. It's a trainee license. Yeah. And so right off the bat, she gives him the upper hand and he never lets it go. Yes, and this really great choice too, and this also really helps to establish the dynamic between Clarice and Hannibal and sets up the whole, th this conflict of the film, which is their game of cat and mouse. Absolutely. What's your favorite scene? My favorite scene would have to be the whole screening of the lambs scene. Like, to me, this is probably not just the most important part of the film, but 
the turning point, I'd say, of the film, because we get to know more about Clarice's story. And as I mentioned, that the whole flash flashbacks and music would have made the scene look cheap. It would have cheapened the whole experience for the audiences. But they this really while there has been lots of great acting in this film from Hopkins and Foster, I think this is a perfect example to demonstrate their acting prowess. There is just the acting, like the emotion in Clarice's voice, her voice is breaking as she's describing the tragic tale of how she failed to save the lambs and Lecter is basically the, the captive audience, the spectator of this tragedy, this tragic tale. And really, the story is also a great analogy for the themes of the film, which are change for, for Clarice, basically, how she wants to save the world from all these in, from the injustices the monsters that wreak havoc among the innocent such as herself yeah and it again it just gives more support to the fact that they're the heart of the film that we both chose scenes uh, between the two of them just talking to each other so yeah definitely um that's that's such a powerful dynamic they both won awards for their acting both won oscars mm-hmm. for this so. well deserved very well deserved yeah. yes yeah absolutely yeah and silence and that is all the time we have left for today's episode thank you so much ryan for coming here today to discuss the 30th anniversary of one of the greatest horror films of all time and the first one to win best picture in a genre that has often been overlooked by the academy but looks like we are making significant progress these years that's absolutely right yeah there's some great new ones coming out and uh thank you so much for having me on man i'm looking forward to the next episode anytime and this has been sin city live for cmru.ca i'm one of your hosts nick manessis joined today by our guest the riveting ryan robinson Thanks, man, and goodbye, everyone. Thank you. I do wish we could have chat longer, but I'm having some family over for dinner. Yeah, we will. <laughs> we'll have to pick it up next time after, you, after you've eaten. Of course, <laughs> definitely. That's right. Bye. Bye.